Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. So what? Have you ever listened to something, listened to somebody talk or, or read something and kind of read it and said, yeah, well, so what? What does this mean? Uh, a man named Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a very, very well-known uh, conservative seminary. And he, he taught preachers that they always needed to answer this question, so what? Because it's easy for us as preachers to say, okay, here's what these Bible verses say, and here's what these word means, and here's the theology, and here's how this relates to all that. And you guys are coming in with real life happening. And if I'm not careful as the preacher, at the end of it, you might be able to say, well, so what? what is, what's the point? Why? That's nice information, but how does it connect with me? And so, so what? And so today, we're going to turn a little bit of a real practical corner and answer this question. How does our union with Christ affect our lives in practical ways? Because I get this idea of union with Christ. I'll talk a bit more about it in a minute. But um, it's... It's very much, there's an intellectual component to trying to understand it. You know, what does it mean to be saved? When, so now we're in Christ and he's in us and then we're to believe this and we're dead and we're alive and, and trying to figure all that out. Well, today it, it starts to get really practical, okay? So practical results of your union with Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians, page 1354 in the Bible that's in the chair there. Now, so let me do a quick review here. Uh, we've seen that it's in Christ that we have our redemption and our forgiveness and that we are buried with him in his death and we are risen with him in his life to new life. And, and the, the idea of being buried with him in his death means that his death becomes our death for sin. We, the sin penalty is paid for us. And, and now he comes into us and we become new creations in Christ. The moment that we receive Jesus as Savior, we become new creations in him. And then we have his life in us, this new life that we're supposed to live. And, and that we need to remember, this, the question gets asked in chapter two, I'm sure it was asked of Paul, so, so how do we live this out? You know, you're telling us to do this. How do we live the Christian life? We get how we get saved. Right? We get saved because we admit we're sinners. We believe Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And we put our faith in him to be our savior. So we get that. How do we live the Christian life? And in chapter 2, Paul says you live the Christian life the same way you got saved. You, you un, under, come to understand what God said about something. And then you believe it and trust it. And then act on it. And so we, we live the Christian life the same way we get saved. And um, then he talked about... Uh, things that get us sidetracked from that. And then the beginning of chapter three, he's talking about that we have been raised with Christ and we need to set our, our hearts on heavenly things, not on things on earth. Focus our mind on those things. And so it can sound like, man, just you need to become heavenly minded. 
End of story. Have you ever known anybody they'll saying that's so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good? That's a possibility, right? When we're not answering the so what question. And so here in chapter three, beginning in verse five, because of all those things that we just talked about, he says this, he says, therefore, because of those things, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he continues on this vein, but we're going to focus just in on these verses today. So, practical results of your union with Christ. Go ahead and go to the uh, two slides forward, if you would. There you go. So Paul here talks about, he says, because, because these things are true, because you have been born again because you have been united with Jesus and died with him and risen with him to new life because of all these things therefore and what he tells us is that there's some things that need to go this is where it starts to get practical there are things that need to go out of our lives and the reason is because they don't match the truth about our relationship with Christ when we're talking about that we died with him and died to sin and sin no longer has its controlling power over us like we've talked about and that we have this new life in him and he's saying, okay, so I got some things that need to go. And they aren't necessarily the only things, but they're important things. These things need to go because they don't match the truth of your relationship with Christ. Let that sink in because that will help you a lot in life, not just the list we're looking at today. Some things need to go because they do not match the truth about your relationship with Christ. And so he says, he starts this list. He says, therefore, right? Verse five, put to death your members which are on the earth. What? Put to death your members which are on the earth. We're gonna talk about put to death and what it means in a little bit. But when he says your members, he's talking about those things that have been part of your life. Before you became a believer in Jesus Christ, there were things that were part of your life that, as we're gonna see, don't belong because they don't match the truth about your relationship with Christ. And so they, they kind of like become members of you. They become part of your life. And he's saying those, those things need to be put to death and, he's, and they need to go. So let's look at the list and talk about them. First one, he says fornication needs to go. Now that sounds like an old you know, kind of fashioned word to us, but let's be real clear about what it, it's like. The Greek word comes from the word porneia. That's for fornication. Porneia is sounding like what? 
pornography, that's right, and so it's, it's this area, it's sexual immorality of any and all kinds, specifically with this in mind. That God set up uh, things to be that there's a, a one man, one woman, uh, they're married, they're committed to one another, that in that relationship, they are free to express them sexually and be sexually intimate, okay? Uh, and they're free to think about each other that way, and so it's all free, but those, that's the boundary. And so any kind of sexual activity, any kind of sexual thinking that's intended to pursue um, stimulation or arousal, any of that kind of thing, is outside that boundary, okay? And so Paul is saying that needs to go. It needs to go. Now, before we go any farther, why is Paul telling them this? Because they're all Christians and this is not a part of any of their lives, right? No, the reality is, is they lived in a world that's very much like the one we live in where sexual immorality was rampant, okay? And it was a part of people's lives. And then they come to Christ and know that doesn't match their relationship with Christ and so it needs to go. But so he's telling this because undoubtedly there were plenty of people in the church in Colossae who had sexual immorality in their lives. And all of these things we're gonna look at today, all right? So fornication needs to go. Secondly, in uncleanness. And this really is the idea of being impure, that there's things in your life that don't belong. There might be a lot of good things in your life, but you, this area of your life, you got that thing, that sin that's there. And maybe you keep it hidden, but it's there. And so there's impurity or uncleanness, okay? Uh, and it doesn't have to be just with respect to sexuality. All of these I think we're talking about in this first list could apply to sexuality, but they don't necessarily have to be. So uncleanness. Then passion. And you think, well, what's wrong with passion? I want to be passionate about, I'm passionate about some things and all that. Well, the word that's translated passion here means strong feelings that aren't being guided by God. They're just there. Okay? They might not be wrong in and of themselves, but here's the idea. Unguided passion because of the world we live in, because of the fact that we were born sinful and we're still working our way out of that, uh, unguided passion almost always ends up with the next thing on the list, which is evil desire, okay? In other words, all that we're doing needs to be guided by God, right? Everything gets run through that filter. And so this idea of passion, and then evil desire, strong feelings that are guided by evil. This, the evil thing's going on here and my feelings are connected to that and I'm, I'm being moved along by that. And then the last one, he says covetousness. You think covetousness? Let's look what he, how he says this. He says covetousness, the end of verse five, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And this, he says that elsewhere in the scripture and we see that. But this idea of covetousness is desiring anything enough to consider disobeying God to have it. Because uh, it's not wrong to desire things. I mean, I've told you before, you know, give me a, 19, a, a Corvette that was made in the 1970s, and if it's yellow, I'll really like it. I, you know, I would enjoy having that. Uh, I don't think that's a sinful desire. But if I start saying, you know what, I found one, and if I would just stop giving for a while, I could afford to have that thing. What have I done? I've taken this desire for this thing and put it as more important than God, even though I haven't done it. Because why would I be considering it? I'm trying to figure out how to do it, right? Covetousness. 
And, and it's, it's called idolatry because it's taking God's place in our life. Something that we're desiring is taking God's place. Um, that could be physical things, it could be relationships with people, all those kinds of things, where we're wanting something that God would say no to, but we still want it, okay? That is covetousness. Now, so he says these things need to go, and he says that by saying they need to be put to death. Verse five, therefore put to death these things. Well, in one sense, we are already put to death. They're already put to death when Jesus came. And so what he's really telling us to do I said, let me back up. These things were put to death when we received Jesus as Savior. But we have to do is believe that. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. When the definition for put to death, there's two main aspects to it. Uh, when I looked it up. You know how you go to English dictionary and look up words and it says one definition and then, wow, this other definition's sort of the same but quite a bit different. You ever notice that? Anyway, same thing with this. So there's perception and prevention, these ideas in that. Uh, and so let's talk about perception first. This idea of putting to death. And this is what that is, it's one word and it, it has this idea. It means it's to view as a corpse. In other words, without life. To regard as dead or inoperative. And so the Apostle Paul here, the Holy Spirit leading him to say this, is saying these things, you look at this list, this, these things, you need to regard them as though they are dead and have no power over you. And you say, well, but they do. Ah, but this is where we have to come to understand what is the real truth and match it. And this is where that truth gets really, really practical. So when we talk about this idea of perception, how you perceive these things in your life. Um, imagine that you have a really mean, manipulative, self-serving boss. Now maybe some of you don't have to imagine, okay? But imagine you have that. He doesn't have your well-being in mind at all. He's big, he's loud, he's threatening, and he intimidates. He can fire you at any time he wants to, no questions asked. Uh, he requires you not only to do things for the company, but he requires for you to take care of personal things for him too, like run his errands, clean his car, you know, get his house ready for a, a party, whatever. And he still expects you to get the rest of your work done. I mean, he's just, he's no good but he has control over you and runs a good portion of your life. And you learn to cope. You learn how to do it. You learn how to try to keep him happy. You jump when he speaks. But emotionally, you find yourself sort of a basket case, right? At work because of him. And because of all that tension stuff at work, guess where that goes? It goes home with you. So it's really affecting your life negatively. And then one day, upper management discovers what he's really like. Okay? And for some reason, they don't fire him, but they do demote him to the lowest employee in the company. Okay? So he, he's no longer your boss. He no longer has any authority over you. But he still works for the company, and so he's still around. This is really good news, isn't it? Okay? And for, for a while, work gets so much better, that something, but then something happens. One day he walks up to you and demands that you do this or that, and he puts on a threatening demeanor and something crazy happens. You do what he says. Even though he's not your boss, 
Uh, all of your past memories, the powerful emotions that are connected to them, all come flooding back in, and you act like he's still your boss. But he's not. He's not still your boss. That's the truth. So how will you deal with all of this? Well, you're going to have to really settle in on what's true. He's no longer your boss. He doesn't have any authority over you. You don't have to do what he says. He can't make you do anything. You have to know it. And then you have to what? Believe it. And then you have to act like it. No matter how much you feel like you have to do what he says, you don't. You can't let your feelings be the decider here. Because when he shows up, your feelings spike, you know, and you can quickly come to believe the wrong things. What you know to be true is what you must act on him. And here's the good news. Once you tell him no, and then tell him no again, and then tell him no again, and then maybe even just ignore him, you'll begin to experience the freedom that you actually have. And he'll still show up and bluster at you, but you will know the truth and you'll be able to say no. Now, occasionally he might catch you off guard and without thinking, you'll immediately do what he says because it just happened, right? And, emotions, and afterwards you'll ask yourself, what was I thinking? <laughs> Why did I do that? And here's... A problem. If this happens fairly often where you find yourself not, you know, you kept giving in to what he tells you to do, you might say, I guess he is still my boss. But he's not. The truth is what? He's not. You get that? The truth is he's not your boss. And that's the truth you need to keep coming back to, both when you're succeeding and when you're failing. The truth is the key here. Can you see how that applies to these truths we're talking about? Scripture tells us that we are dead to sin. It has no more controlling power over us. We can say no to it. But the reality is we have said yes to it so long, for so many ways, and there's so many mental entanglements with it, and so many emotional entanglements with it, and memories, all that kind of stuff, that it feels like Sin does still have controlling power over us, doesn't it? Sometimes. There you find yourself tempted with something and, and you feel, oh no, I, you feel like you can't do anything, but go along. But it's just like that boss. It, it doesn't have controlling power over you. And so you have to start telling yourself the truth. No, it doesn't. And you tell yourself this truth when you found, you've, you've already believed, you've already sinned, and you, now you need to tell yourself the truth. Wait a minute. That doesn't have power over me. I don't have to do that. And then when you find yourself in the middle of it because you haven't, you know, you got caught off guard, whatever, you say, wait a minute, no, what's really true here? And eventually you want to get to the place where we're saying no up front. No, this isn't, it isn't true. You, it does not have the power to control me. And Paul talks about this sin that's present and it wants us, but we don't have to say yes to it. We can indeed say no to it. And so this idea of putting to death, is how we look at this, we need to view these things as corpses with no power over us. And you gotta keep working on that. That's, that's something practical that you can do. Day in and day out, tell yourself the truth. Meditate on those things. Try to make decisions accordingly. 
And then there's some practical things we can do about these things to get rid of them. And this is where the definition that's kind of a preventative kind of definition comes in. And it means to deprive of energizing power. The same word means to deprive of energizing power, to cut off everything that energizes it. And so here you are, you have whatever your particular temptation is, and we all probably have a few that are like big to us, whatever they are. So here it comes, and we, we find that, man, this seems to have controlling power. It acts like it has controlling power. How can I de-energize that? How can I weaken that? Where it doesn't have that feeling to me anymore. Well, you think about, if you have an alarm clock, and this happened to me once, an alarm clock that for whatever reason, in the middle of the night, it kept going off. And I couldn't figure out, it was a, you know, a little electronic thing, I couldn't figure out. It kept going off, kept going off. You know what my solution was finally? I took the batteries out. <laughs> okay. So in other words, I'm not giving it the opportunity to wake me up in the middle of the night anymore. How about if you have a neighbor who has this big dog who loves to tear your garden up uh, and you know, just creates problems, gets into your garbage, and, and then leaves his little calling cards all over your yard, which <laughs> inevitably you step in when you go out and mow the lawn. You know, it's just a problem. And, and, but the reality is what you're doing, you didn't, but you still put out your leftovers to feed the dog. Why does he come around? Because you're feeding him. You don't like all that stuff, but you're feeding him. Well, do what? Stop feeding him. And so these are the things we need to do with things in our life, with, with sin. Uh, and Paul in Romans uh, says something just very pointedly about this aspect. And I put it up here in two different translations. But he, he says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Another way to say it, don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. And so the idea is we have these things in our lives and sins that we struggle with. We need to look and say, wait a minute, what opens the door to this in my life? What causes me to find myself confronted with this and, and struggling with it? Now, sometimes life just does it to you. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about things that you have control over. And you just say, I, I, I can't let that be in my life. Well, but I like that. Well, you can't let it be in your life. And you're going to have to figure out what that is. So just give an example. Let's say that sexual temptation is something that you struggle with, okay? And, and that you find yourself giving into it. And it feels very strong in your life. And you're saying, okay, where is this coming from? Besides the fact that you're a sexual creature of God. But where's this pull to sin coming from? And you realize you might have to say, you know what? What am I watching on TV because, you know, there's lots of things you can watch on TV that may not seem, eh, it's not very bad. It's mostly good. But if you're struggling with sexual temptation and that, what is in that TV stuff that you're watching, stirs that up. Even though it may not be any big deal in the, you know, in the TV show. You, get, you understand what I'm saying? Are you tracking with me here? It's not that, like, big a deal. But what it does is it stirs things up. And if you're struggling with that, next thing you know, you've got this full-blown temptation. And it's not even, you, you don't even immediately make that connection. You know, it could be that. It could be what you're listening to. It could be what you're reading. It could be what you're hanging, uh, who you're hanging around with. It can, anything like that. And we need to say, 
Wait a minute, if I let that in my life, I am making provision for my flesh. I'm providing a way for my flesh to be appealed to. Okay? I'm, I'm allowing here, I'm indulging my desires a little bit. And it just, it's not going to work. You have to de-energize it. You have to unplug those things. Because this is something that's really, really important to understand. You can't manage sin. In other words, you can't allow, well... I can let this little bit in my life. It's okay. I can control it. I'm not going to let it become a bigger thing. I'm, I've got this under control. I know what's going on. And you may not even consciously think about that. It may just be, you know, you just do it and you allow it. But don't think you can possibly manage it. Sin will always get you. You know what this is like? It's like releasing a poisonous snake in your house and saying, I'm fine because I'm alert. I know what to watch out for. Well, guess what? Eventually, the poisonous snake is going to get you. And that's the way it is with these things that pull us to sin. And we, need, you know, we are so bombarded by it that sometimes we sit and evaluate what we're watching, what we're listening to, what we're talking about, and don't even think a thing about it. But it doesn't belong. It's, it's, it goes under that category of unclean. It's impure, right? There's stuff there. It needs to go. And so I'm challenging all of us here today to make some hard decisions and I'm not saying don't watch TV or movies, I'm saying, but I'm saying become alert, become aware of what are the things that stir this up and then unplug it, right? Unplug it from your life somehow. Get rid of it. Maybe someday you can add it back in, but if it's leading you to keep either struggling big time with the temptation and then more often than not giving into it, you need to make the decision to let it, get it out of your life, okay? All right. So, Paul continues here in verse number six. He says, because of these things, these, this list that he just gave us, he says, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So he's saying, remember I said this statement, these things need to go because they don't match the truth about your relationship with Christ. They don't match that truth. And so this is what he's saying, right? Listen, these things that you're allowing in your life, he says, that's the very kind of thing that God is going to judge the unsafe for and it's going to send them to hell. They, they don't match. Jesus has saved you from that. It doesn't match. And then he, he reminds them, he says, verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Before you were saved, those were realities in your life, but they shouldn't be now because they don't match the truth about your relationship with Jesus. And then he continues, verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. They list six things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And he says, do not lie to one another. So let's look at that list. Okay, the first list is very much about what's going on inside of us and, and um, desires and temptations. These are more interpersonal in, in nature. They're more about how you interact with people. And the first one is anger. And this word that's translated anger here means a disposition of deep emotional opposition to something or someone. And it's a settled emotional state. And so it's not, this is not about, oh, I, all of a sudden I get angry about something. It isn't that. Have you ever known someone who you would describe as an angry person? 
They're starting off angry. That's what he's talking about here. And this, this can't be a part of your life as a Christian. shouldn't be. Anger. Then he says wrath. And this is the idea of rage. We think of losing your temper, the outbursts, right, that go along with anger. He says that shouldn't be a part of your life as a Christian. And then he talks about malice. And these are the underlying motives of evil toward another person. This is when we're ill-willed towards someone. You know, that's easy to find yourself there because somebody hurts you, somebody lies about you. I mean, it's easy to find yourself there. And I don't remember when I, if I said it here or someplace else recently, but is there anybody besides me? I, I've, gone, I've had something happen you know, in my life where I've conversations with things I feel like I haven't been treated rightly or I've been misjudged, whatever. And I remember going out and mowing the lawn for an hour and a half and I had a conversation with that person the entire hour and a half. Why I was right and why they were wrong. Anybody do anything like that? Okay, so, but that's, that doesn't belong in my life. I need to think through it. I need to give it to the Lord. I need it. If there's something I need to do about it, I need to do it. But I can't harbor this ill will towards someone else as a believer. It does not match the truth about what Jesus has done in my life. Okay? Then he says blasphemy. And we think of this word usually in the idea of you know, some sort of spiritual thing or whatever. And it is. But really the root idea of the word means that you call something bad good. Or you call something good bad. You're speaking evil in those ways. And certainly it does apply to God. If you want to attribute the work of God to Satan, that's blasphemy. Okay? That's true. But this is where... Uh, I'm not even going to try to get in depth. I think you get the idea that it's, it's easy when somebody... <laughs> how do how I... Have you ever known somebody who was just always positive about everything? And they came to you and they told you this wonderful thing and that wonderful thing. And, and anybody ever have a tendency to want to say something? Yeah, well... To say, call that, well, that's a good thing, but, but no, it's not. It's not really good. Here's why. And it's not so much even about those words it is. It's what's going on in your heart in those things, right? This is someone who just becomes oppositional. So, but this, 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 this approach to life doesn't belong, doesn't match who we are in Christ. And then filthy language. We get this filthy speech, foul language, what we might call curse words, uh, words that would be considered obscene in many situations. They don't belong in our lives. And, I mean, think about this. Well, I only swear when I get really mad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and guess what? We already talked about anger. <laughs> Wrath. And so this, we need to get to a point where that's just not part of our vocabulary. Whether we're happy or sad, whether we're mad or whatever. We get to where those words are. We don't curse. We just don't. And, and it's work to get it out of your vocabulary, okay? And then certainly a lie. We get that. A lie is where you knowingly speak falsely or you willfully mislead someone or deceive people. He says that doesn't belong in your life either because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. God is the God of truth, right? Lying doesn't match the relationship that we have with Christ. So here we are, now in um, 
verse number nine. He says, do not lie to one another. And now we get back to, again, this theological beliefs, this understanding of what God has done. He says, do not lie to one another. And this, I think what continues from here applies to the first list and applies to the second list and would apply to anything else that doesn't belong in our lives as Christians. He says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay. The moment you or I come to that point where we realize we have sinned against a holy God and that that sin separates us from him and then we come to understand that Jesus died paying the penalty for that sin, all those sins so we don't have to, rose from the dead and that we by faith can receive Jesus' Savior and then we make that decision. What he's saying here is the old man, the old you, died. And then he made a new you. Now I say, what? He didn't do a very good job on the outside with the new me, right? No, he's talking about that what happens the moment we receive Christ as Savior. You remember that we were spiritually dead in the deepest level of our being, and, and we had this pull towards sin there. Sin did have controlling power over us. All of that reality in our spirit, like to the deepest level of our being, he moved in. And the old dead spirit, gone. And now he moves in and he gave us new life, a new spirit. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. And that's what he's done. And so Paul is saying here, listen, because this is the reality that the old man died. And, and so his deeds should be, they're gone too. I mean, they're, they're still hanging around as we know but they no longer have control and power. You die to that and you have this new life. None of this stuff matches. And so I encourage you in your life as you're living, as you're thinking about as a Christian, hopefully getting in the word, having conversations with God, fellowship with other believers, that you start to become mindful of in your life and say, wait a minute, does this match what it means to my relationship with Christ means? Is this consistent with what he says about me? That I'm a new cre creation? And actually I'm a new, not only a new creation, but I'm becoming more and more like Jesus, verse 10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So the Lord is the one who created this new person that we are and is created in his image in a new way and shaping us more and more to be like Jesus. And so we wanna ask, does this match? This thing that I'm allowing to take up my time and my energy and my resources, does this match? Is the way I'm responding to this person in my life, does this match? Is this what a new creation of the Lord, who's becoming more like Jesus, would, it, would he act this way or she act this way in this relationship? It starts to get real practical, doesn't it? How am I living? What am I allowing? What am I loving? What am I pursuing? Does it really match? And so he says, that the idea is we should put off all these, and that's at the beginning of um, verse eight. Now, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Up above he says, put them to death. Now he says these things, put them off. And so this word, put off all, all these things, comes again, translates one Greek word that means to completely strip off. Thoroughly renounce. This doesn't belong in my life. 
this does not match. Okay? And then to completely strip off. And this really is the idea, we're not talking about varnish on furniture, we're talking about clothing. Okay? And the word means to completely strip off. And so the idea is, if you can think of this analogy, before you came to Christ, whether you were little or you were an adult, before you came to Christ, you were unsaved. You had a spirit that was dead to God. You had a nature that was very alive to sin. All of those things. You were not in right relationship with God. And, and guess what? How you lived matched. It did match. Okay? And what we think of is all of these things, you were spiritually dead. What kind of clothing did the spiritually dead man wear? Okay, dark. Uh, I'm just thinking in general, right? It's these things we're talking about. It's the fornication. It's the uncleanness. It's the anger, wrath, malice. That's the clothing that the old man wore. Well, he's dead. Okay, and when you got saved, there's a new wardrobe, which we're going to talk about. But this old wardrobe, what you find is that you keep wearing a dead man's clothes. And the idea is, wait a minute, that old dead guy died and, and you shouldn't be wearing his clothes anymore. You needed to take it off. And so, okay, so I have, you know, one of these, uh, say, let's say malice in my life. Okay, that needs to come off, see? And I'm going to stop there. I'm not going any farther on the list. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? It says take it off. So this is hugely different than saying... That's sin. You need to quit it. Here's all these rules. Don't break them. That's not what it's about. It's about I have a relationship with Jesus that has changed everything. And so how I'm going to live this out is I have to start saying what is in my life? What, what things am I wearing in my life that need to come off? need to go. And so we need to completely strip all of these things off. Now, so this really boils down to when we think about our lives matching the truth of our relationship with Jesus. We've got to remember, first of all, it's about Jesus, right? Isn't that everything? Amen. Your life, everything? Amen. Okay, we know it. That's the big picture. And it's easy to say, oh yes, it's all about Jesus. Okay, then second thing, it's all about Jesus actually being first. And that's where we're getting practical. I got the big statement, it's all about Jesus. Yeah, but is, it, is he first in my life? Is he first in this area of my life? Is he first in my marriage, in my finances, in my raising my kids, in my work, in my hobbies, in my... Is he first? Is he really first? And all those things. Because remember, what's this theme of Colossians? that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we start off with this question today. How does our union with Christ affect our lives in practical ways? Well, there are things in our lives that need to go because they don't match who we are in Christ. They just need to go. And by the way, if we can chill out on this in a sense and realize, yeah, this is true. I have this in my life. You got this. Let's help each other. We don't have to be ashamed. We can 
fellowship and help each other grow. Anyway, so what about then, surely the Christian life isn't just about taking stuff off. No, it's about putting things on too. And Paul talks about that. But we're not going to talk about it until next week. Okay? So next week we'll continue this idea of practical results of your union with Christ. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word. Thank you that you loved us, that you have changed us. Thank you that uh, it's so matter of fact and practical as, as when Paul talks about these things don't belong in our lives. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to see those things in our lives where they might be and, and make these decisions, practical decisions we've talked about to uh, make a change. We want to honor you with our lives, Lord. So stir our hearts and lead us along to do so. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.